For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this evening, Our God Reigns, Our God Reigns, this is part two, Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. So we're back in Revelation, and now in Revelation 11, we've arrived at the end of the third cycle in the book, the third of seven cycles, and the blast of the seventh trumpet, Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. So the end of the cycle of trumpets, now if you remember where we are in the text, the end of the cycle of trumpets gives us a vision of the end of this age. We've come to the conclusion at the end of this cycle of Daniel's 70th week. The third of three severe woes is about to be poured out on unbelieving earth dwellers. And we see language in verse 19 that is indicative of the great day of the Lord and the onset of final judgment. The temple of God was opened in heaven. The ark of his covenant was seen in the temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. We see that representative language that portends the end, right? However, in spite of the onset, there are final judgment. That final judgment of the wicked is also inextricably linked with the ultimate triumph of the messianic king and those for whom he came to deliver, uh, came to save. So when the angel, the seventh angel sounded, verse 15, there were loud voices in heaven proclaiming that victory, pro- proclaiming that triumph. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So once again, demonstrated in the text, if you think about this theme with me, We see the ultimate and final example here in Revelation 11 of a familiar theme that runs throughout the course of redemptive history. James Hamilton, in his biblical theology, refers to this theme as God's glory in salvation through judgment. God's glory in salvation through judgment. It's a very common theme that we see woven throughout Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, that describes in a brief concise statement, God's redemptive plans and purposes for us in particular during this age. God's glory in salvation through judgment. Hamilton says, salvation shows God to be merciful, to be gracious, slow to anger, great in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. These words are invoked repeatedly throughout Israel's sacred writings as a way of characterizing the intimate connection between God's very nature and his commitment to his people. Judgment, on the other hand, shows God to be the one who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the sons and on the sons of sons on the third and on the fourth generations. And the reality of judgment should keep us from thinking thinking of God in purely sentimental terms, as though he were a grandfatherly buddy who just lets things go. And the reality of salvation should likewise keep us from thinking of God as merely a terrifying, vengeful judge. In other words, God is one who is just, and he magnifies his justice by pouring out his judgments upon the wicked. And God is the justifier of the one who places faith in Jesus Christ. He is gracious. And he is merciful and he magnifies his grace and mercy upon those whom he saves, putting them, placing them in union with his son, Jesus Christ. Both judgment and salvation serve God's own glory. Both judgment and salvation terminate upon God's own glory. And that is because they both reflect inviolable aspects of God's own nature. God is just and God is merciful. God is righteous, God is holy, and God is gracious and God is compassionate. So then, if you think about that with me and that theme that runs throughout scripture, salvation always comes through judgment. Salvation from sin comes through judgment upon sin. And think about the reality of that statement in scripture. Noah and his family are saved, aren't they? but they're saved through a terrible flood that judges the whole earth for its sin against God. It kills everything on the planet, except Noah, his family, and those animals that were spared on the ark. 
the deliverance of Israel out of bondage in Egypt came through God's judgment upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They were delivered out of their bondage in Egypt, and at the same time, God judges the idolatrous Egyptians. God establishes the throne of David, and he establishes the throne of David by defeating the Philistines. This pattern is repeated throughout redemptive history. God's glory in salvation through judgment. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. He ascends to heaven and receives the kingdom. The ruler of this world is cast out and cast down. And that is the preeminent example of God's glory and salvation through judgment. Taking all of our sins, pouring uh, judgment against our sin upon Jesus Christ in his own body on the tree as he delivers us from judgment, salvation through judgment. That pattern will continue until reaching its final and ultimate climax at the return of Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead at his appearing, pouring out his judgments upon the wicked and ushering his sons to glory. The just will be raised to everlasting life at the time of the final judgment upon the wicked. And again, that final iteration of God's glory being magnified in salvation through judgment. There's a text that exemplifies this in the, in the New Testament. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. Let's look at this together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We, we see this theme um, all over Scripture. Right? Scripture is replete with this theme. But one particular place in the New Testament that I thought to, I thought well exemplifies this theme is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're beginning in verse 3. Paul says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. It's a wonderful thing to say, right? We pray that that would be said of us. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. In other words, God's people are saved to the glory of God. They're saved through judgment. Since, verse six, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In other words, God saves his people through a judgment upon the wicked, right? He's going to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, those who persecute you, and give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. Uh, revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, verse eight, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These, verse nine, shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you is believed. In other words, there's that, that combined work, isn't there? We see God's, judgment upon the wicked, and God's salvation of his people, God's redemptive plans and purposes in the context of his plans and purposes to judge the wicked. That's the way that it works, folks. There's a theme that runs throughout scripture that teaches us that, God's glory in salvation through judgment. Anyone, anyone who is ever saved is saved, in a manner of speaking, through judgment, right? When you were genuinely saved, when the Lord saved you, you saw yourself in light of God's holiness and God's righteousness, God's goodness, God's compassion, God's mercy. You saw yourself as a sinner, didn't you? You saw yourself in the light of God's law to have sinned against him, to have rebelled against him. The one who is saved sees God as holy, not indifferent to sin, but holy, separated from sin. They see God as just, as righteous, as true, as good. And they know, the one who is saved knows that there is a day appointed on which God will judge this world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. And he's given evidence of that by raising that man from the dead. They know that there is a day in which God will judge. And they come to a sensed experience of the weight of that curse that hangs over their head. If you've been genuinely converted, you understand the weight of that curse. 
The weight of condemnation, the condemnation of the law. The crushing weight of uncompromising justice. When someone has their eyes opened to perceive that reality, what do they do? They flee the wrath to come and they flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're saved as though through judgment. Do you see? Saved as though through judgment. They flee to Christ for mercy. They trust him in faith. They're saved through through judgment to the glory of God, to the glory of his mercy, to the glory of his grace, to the praise of his grace, to the praise of his name, even to the praise of his justice that they know was poured out on Jesus Christ in their place. That's the gospel. God's glory in salvation through judgment. Even now, Brothers and sisters, as we strive to endure the difficulties that we face, the adversities that we go through, the trouble that afflicts us, the temptations that afflict us in our battle with sin, there are warnings in scripture, aren't there, that warn us against falling away from Christ in the face of those temptations. Warn, warnings that keep us, the, the intention of those warnings is to keep us on the path, to keep us on the course, to keep us clinging to him in faith, to keep us from apostasy, to keep us from straying from him, to cling to him who is our life. It's God's glory in salvation through judgment. When we face difficulty or when we face adversity, when we face trials, like trials that we've been through, those aren't indications of God abandoning his people, it's quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. It's God is going to be glorified in saving his people through judgment. God's name as a merciful God, as a holy God, as a just God, the one who delights to show mercy, God will be magnified in the salvation of his people through trials and tribulations, through difficulty and adversity. This life is not going to be easy. It is not going to be light. But in comparison with the glory that awaits us, it is a momentary light affliction. Amen? With the eternal weight of glory that we compare this life with, it's nothing. (laughs) It's as dust on the scales when you compare it. God's glory and salvation through judgment. Uh, That's how he saves us, brothers and sisters. Uh, We can't think it's strange. We can't think it's strange when various trials come upon us as though some strange thing has happened to us. It has been appointed not only for you to believe in his name, but for you to suffer for his name. That's what Paul told the Philippians. We see that pattern repeated here in Revelation chapter 11, the very same pattern. And here at the end of the age, at the end of the cycle, it's this pattern that comes to its, his, its full and final climax, its full and final apex, God's glory in saving his people through the judgment that he pours out upon the wicked. Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. And you know, I've, I've thought about that before, and we were talking, I was talking with a brother about it not long ago, that when you come to a, a, a biblical understanding of God's plans and purposes for you and I in this life, in his, in his determinations to save his people, we understand our place in that. We trust him. We lean on him. And when we face adversity, when we face difficulty, we don't wince and run away in fear. We can, depending upon him, we can lean into it. We can lean into it, understanding his good plans and purposes through it. You ever taken a 18-month-old to the doctor to get a shot? Well, 18 months old, they don't recognize that that's what's about to happen. (laughs) So they're like, and then it happens, and it's like, you know. But then you take a a two-and-a-half-year-old, right, Christine, or a three-year-old to the doctor to get a shot. Now they understand what's about to happen, and it's like, Absolute panic. (laughs) They don't have anything. They want to run from that circumstance. Um, We as Christians cannot behave like the three-year-old about to get a shot. We 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 can't look at our adversity, our difficulty, our trials that way. We, knowing, knowing that God is going to do good to us through them, right? That's good medicine for us. Knowing that God is going to do good for us through that, we can lean in and we can trust him. Um, We can trust him. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. I mentioned in uh, the sermon uh, last week that when you come to an understanding of justification by grace, by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, when you realize we're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, 
and that you have been set free from the penalty of, this, of your sin. You've been set free from the condemnation of the law. When you come to understand that you've truly been set free, you are free. You are free. What is it that the Christian wants to do with that freedom? What is it the Christian wants to do? The Christian, indwelt by the Spirit, wants to serve God, serve the Lord Jesus Christ with his freedom, wants to do everything, wants to entrust himself and enslave himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to live for his glory, right? I want to live for his glory. Well, what if the Lord appoints difficulty for you? What do you want to do? You're free. You're free. What do you want to do with that? I want to do that well, right? The Lord has appointed that for me. The Lord has appointed that for you. He's appointed that for our good. We know that he works all things together for our good. So what is it that we as Christians then can do when that difficulty comes upon us? We understand that it comes from a gracious and merciful heavenly father, one who is infinite in wisdom, one who is perfect in power, and one who has perfectly and divinely orchestrated that difficulty for our good, for our sanctification, for our conformity into the image of his own son. We know that he has done that for us. So what then can we do in the midst of that great difficulty? We can lean in and we can say, Lord, I trust you. I rejoice in you. I know that you are good. I know that you're compassionate. I know that you are holy, just, and true. I know that you're working all things together for my good. And we can serve him with grace, the power that his spirit supplies. We can serve him in a way that honors and glorifies him. That's what we should do as Christians. In other words, it, we, we want to come to a right understanding of our trials so that we can glorify and magnify his grace in them. God's salvation, God's glory and salvation through judgment. We're going to be saved in that way. Victory, that victory comes hand in hand with God's final judgment. Here in Revelation chapter 11, it comes hand in hand with God's final judgment upon the wicked. Verse 18, the nations were angry. Your wrath has come. You see, there's a pronouncement of victory. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And at the same time, verse 18, his wrath has come. God's glory and salvation through judgment. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. The time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. These two things are inextricably linked. Last week, now, we began looking at verse 15 and that pronouncement of victory, that pronouncement of ultimate deliverance. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We live now in this tension. It's what uh, theologians have referred to for a long time now as the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. The kingdom has been inaugurated all yet, but it is already, but it is not yet consummated. You see, we live in this tension between the already and the not yet. Well, this, brothers and sisters, is when the not yet becomes the now. <laughs> it becomes the now. What has been inaugurated has now been consummated, verse 15. There's a, sim a scene that depicts this from the Old Testament. If you remember from um, Revelation 5, though, first, Revelation 5, in Revelation 5, we're given a vision of the Ancient of Days, uh, seated upon his throne, holding a scroll in his right hand, and a worthy one, the only one worthy, enters the throne room. He enters the throne room having accomplished our redemption in his own death on the cross. So he is the one, the only one who is found worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of the Ancient of Days and begin to loose its seals and administer the decrees that are written upon that scroll. Now Daniel 7 in the Old Testament records the very same event. Daniel 7 verse 13, listen. Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him, the one who came on the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. To him was given dominion. Doesn't Jesus Christ say in Matthew 28 that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, right? He's received all dominion. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So what is happening there in Daniel chapter seven? Daniel chapter seven is a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ at his ascension receiving the kingdom. 
Jesus Christ is victorious upon the cross. He defeats Satan upon the cross. He is, that victory is vindicated. It's shown to be just in his resurrection from the dead. And Jesus Christ ascends into heaven to approach the ancient of days, to receive the kingdom and to be enthroned. It's the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Psalm 110 is another psalm that depicts that very event. In Psalm 110, the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, said to my Lord, who is David's Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, David's son. Right? Psalm 110 is quoted throughout the New Testament with various implications. It's fascinating. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Already, not yet. Already ruling kingdom already inaugurated. Now, Jesus Christ, you're going to reign until, God says, I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. In eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ will not be ruling in the midst of his enemies. Here in Psalm 110, he's said to be ruling and he's ruling in the midst of his enemies. His people volunteers in the days of his power. In other words, what is Psalm 110 speaking of? What was that account in Daniel 7 speaking of? Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, victorious in his crucifixion, in his death, in his burial, victorious in his resurrection, ascending into heaven, receiving all dominion, receiving a kingdom, and being enthroned. And Jesus Christ there at his ascension, ruling and reigning from heaven over an inaugurated kingdom. He rules and reigns over that inaugurated kingdom until he returns in judgment and all his enemies are made his footstool. You see, this Psalm, Psalm 110, fulfilled, the Bible says, the New Testament says, in the resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in Revelation chapter five, he begins then, having been enthroned, having been found worthy to take the scroll from the right hand who, of him who is seated on the throne, he begins to loose the seven seals, if you remember that text, and he begins to execute the decrees of God concerning this age. And what were those decrees? Judgment upon the wicked, salvation of his people. Right, the preaching of the gospel, the church militant on earth, proclaiming as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ at the same time that God is pouring out his judgments that he's de decreed for unbelieving earth dwellers during this age. Revelation 5 the strong man has been bound. Satan, in other words, has been defeated. And the Lord begins to plunder his house through the preaching of the gospel. You realize that's what's going on now. You see, Satan no longer able to deceive, keep the nations as it were from him. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the preaching of the gospel. The gospel goes out and Jesus Christ is plundering his house, drawing out, drawing out of this world a people for his name. During this time, the wrath of God, Paul says, is presently being revealed from heaven against the kingdoms of this world, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He pours out his judgments represented by those seals, represented by those trumpets. And it's during this time that the Lord Jesus Christ builds his kingdom. As from a mustard seed into a great tree, the kingdom begins to grow. As from a small stone, Daniel chapter two, it becomes a great mountain filling the earth, the gates of Hades not prevailing against it. It's during this time that the ascending beast wages war against the seed of the woman. The saints are given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. In other words, God's people are going to be saved through judgment. God's going to be glorified in it until, in the words of Daniel 7 again, the court is seated. And they shall take away his, Satan's, the beast's dominion to consume and to destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the most high. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. In other words, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That's what's going on in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And following. That's what's going on. This is the end of the age, this future time when the Lord Jesus Christ will return and an ultimate judgment upon the wicked and an ultimate salvation and deliverance of his people, ushering them into glory. The Lord Jesus Christ will reign. The kingdom will be consummated and the celebration will begin, right? The celebration will begin. So Christ at this point 
in Revelation 11 has returned on the clouds of heaven. The dead have been raised. The Lord said, come up here, right? That's an indication of the rapture of the church, the resurrection of the just. The kingdom of God, the everlasting redemptive kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ is being consummated. The one who, let me make a, a point about that. God has always reigned, amen? There's never been a time when God has not ruled and reigned as God over his creation. This is his creation. God has always ruled, always reigned. He's always been God. But God has a redemptive plan, a redemptive purpose in mind. He is going to rule and reign and has seen to it that his son will rule and reign over redeemed people. So God suspends judgment, being long-suffering, being patient, as Paul would say in Acts 17, he's overlooked these times of ignorance. Why? To give all men everywhere opportunity to repent because he has pointed a day in which he will judge the world. In other words, God has a redemptive purpose. That redemptive purpose is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ who rules and reigns as the messianic king. And this time that we live in, redemptive history, redemptive history, there's a reason that God didn't just immediately destroy everything and start over. He has a redemptive purpose in mind. He's going to redeem a people for his own glory, a people for the glory of his son. He's going to redeem a people. He's going to do that through the person and work of his son. And to do that, God is going to take his time. He's going to be patient until all of them, he's long suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and then the end will come. You see? And God will be glorified in salvation through judgment, salvation of his people. Those whom he has determined to set his love upon from before the foundation of the world, he will save to himself to the glory of his grace. And those who reject his son, reject the Lord Jesus Christ, he will pour out his torment, pour out his wrath upon them as objects of retributive justice to the praise and glory of his justice in all eternity, to the glory of his name. God has always ruled. His reign was never in question but he has given this world into the hand of the wicked one for a period of time to accomplish his redemptive purposes. So the dead have been raised. The kingdom of God has been consummated. The one who tempted the Lord with the kingdoms of this world in Luke 4, that devil, that serpent of old, his dominion has been entirely taken away to consume it and to destroy it forever by the time we get to Revelation 11. Uh, verse 15, and what he tempted the Lord with in Luke chapter four, the Lord has now taken for himself as the spoils of war. The Lord has taken, they always belong to him, but he has taken them himself as the spoils of war. God has always ruled. His reign was never in question, but there was redemption to accomplish. And that redemption was to be accomplished through the judgment of those who would oppose God and oppose his son. So that, so that, if you think about that with me, injustice, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So the celebration has begun. They are celebrating the triumph, the triumph, the victory of the lamb over Satan, the triumph of our God who has taken his great power and reigned. Verse 16, in light of all this, the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones, they fell on their faces and worshiped God. Once again, we encounter the 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God. They don't sit for long, do they? <laughs> they don't sit for long before they are prostrate on their faces before God, worshiping and praising God. In Revelation 4, we determine that these elders represent God's people. There, they are clothed in white robes, as we are in eternity, representing an imputed righteousness. There, they have crowns of gold on their heads, representative of the crown of life. And they're seen worshiping there in Revelation chapter four as well. In Revelation chapter four, verse nine, he says, whenever the, the living creature, the living creatures representing all of creation, if you remember that text, the four living creatures representing all of creation, when they give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders, those 24 elders representing the church, God's people, Right? They fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. In Revelation chapter five, they're worshiping the lamb who was slain, each having a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You see in that 
how they represent us before the throne. When we were in Revelation 4 and 5, those 24 elders we saw as the 12 sons of Jacob, for example, and the 12 apostles, right? Representing Old Testament saints, representing New Testament saints, but representing the saints of God and how they're before the throne of God, worshiping and praising God even now. So that when we worship brothers and sisters, our worship is being combined with theirs, our prayers. They're holding golden bowls full of incense, which the Bible says are representative of the prayers of the saints. It's to depict in a graphic way, the very real way in which our prayers ascend before the very throne of God. So that when we pray as the people of God, our prayers don't go unheard. Our prayers are raised to the very throne of God. And we see that in multiple places in Revelation in particular, how our prayers of deliverance, how our prayers for God to be just. We saw that in Psalm 7 this morning. God, pour out your judgment upon the wicked. Make things right. Clean up this mess. We've made a pig's ear with our sin. Lord, the only one that's going to be able to set things straight is the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. Our prayers for justice go before the very throne of God. And here we see these 24 elders, they're representing us. They hold our prayers, as it were, in their hands as they worship before the throne. When we pray, our worship is presented before the Lord. Well, in Revelation 7, they're worshiping again. This time, they're pictured, these 24 elders pictured with the innumerable host of the redeemed. One of the elders explains to John the identity of those who are worshiping around the throne, arrayed in white robes. He asks, right, who are these? Who are these that you see around the throne in white robes with palm branches in their hands? And John says, well, sir, you know, right? He says, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, in other words, these elders worship with us. Here in Revelation 11, they're worshiping again. And they don't remain seated. They don't remain seated. They're laid prostrate before God and they're worshiping. Saying in verse 17, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty. Do you see how thanksgiving and gratitude informs our worship? We need to be a grateful people. Like a grateful people. We, our, our worship should just be full of gratitude. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Thanking the Lord for all that he's done for us, for who he is, the excellence of his person, the perfections of his person, what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. So the question we might ask looking at verse 17 is this, are they worshiping the Father in verse 17? Or are they worshiping the Son in verse 17? And the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> Yet, Lord God Almighty, O Lord God Almighty, refers to the Lord and his Christ from verse 15. They're worshiping the Lord and his Christ. No, no, notice, notice, he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. We've seen that before, haven't we? Multiple places, multiple places. Old Testament and New Testament and in Revelation, we've seen that triadic descriptor of God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, manuscript evidence for many of your translations, if you're reading NASB or ESB, for example, leave off the last of those descriptors. He is the one here in Revelation who is and who was who was and who is. That's how he's described here. The textual evidence for that has a B rating means that it's almost certainly the original. Right? If you study textual criticism, you guys who are familiar with that. And so the text would read here, the one who was and who is. Now, why would this text be worded that way? It's interesting, isn't it? In chapter one, verse four, in chapter one, verse eight, in chapter four, verse eight, he is the one who was and is and is to come. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, he is the one who was and is and is to come. In the New Testament, the one who was and is and is to come. Why here in Revelation 11 now in verse 17, is he the one who was and who is? Because he's come. <laughs> now there's, there's um, in textual criticism, there's a, a one of the supports for evidence of a given reading in a text is the difficulty of the reading, right? In other words, a scribe or someone who came along who was making a copy 
would be likely to think to himself at first blush, oh, they forgot the is to come. And he'd be likely to, that would be something that would be likely added um, because they thought that maybe a mistake was made by a former copyist. So they would add the last of those three who is to come. The more difficult reading of the text is to leave that off. And so that lends support to the veracity of that particular reading. Not only that, but most of the manuscripts have who was and who is. And most of the manuscripts leave off the is to come, right? So we have good evidence to think that the original would have read who is or who was and who is. Leave that to your own consideration, okay? But that's why it would be worded that way. He is the one who was and who is, because now as of Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, he has come. Is to come, that third descriptor in verse 17 is replaced. That third descriptor has been replaced by, you have taken your great power and reigned. So is to come has been replaced by the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. G.K. Beale says this, this means that the last part of this triadic name for God is not merely a reference to his sovereignty over the future, but specifically speaks of the end time when God will break into world history and end it by overthrowing all opposition to his people and setting up his eternal kingdom. Interesting statement, isn't it? So when you read in your Bibles, a descriptor for God that says the one who was and is and is to come, you know what that is to come is in reference to. It's referencing a time, not just in the future when God will reign because he's God, but a time in history, in the words of Beale, when he breaks into world history and ends it by overthrowing all opposition to his people and setting up his eternal kingdom. He is the one who was and who is, and he is to come, amen? And he's going to come in victory. And God's people say, amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now, we worship the Lord with these 24 elders, for example. We worship the Lord for who he is and for what he has done. And we give him thanks. But there is a specific reason given for their worship here in verse 17. And the reason is this, because you have taken your great power and reigned. Now again, God has always reigned. God has always reigned. His very word directs all of history. Think about that. All of history is directed by the very word of God. Why do things happen? Because God determines them. He speaks his word and things come to pass, right? He directs history. He commands, his word commands all of history. But there has been, as it were, a suspension of his judgment. God has overlooked these times of ignorance for the purpose of the redemptive, a redemptive aspect of this kingdom. The everlasting redemptive kingdom has been inaugurated in the person and work of Christ, but it has not yet been consummated. Here in Revelation chapter 11 in verse 17, these 24 elders, John himself recognizes that this kingdom which has been inaugurated is now consummated. And that which God has suspended, he has now fulfilled. And this kingdom now represents the rule and reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. A new heavens and a new earth, a new creation. This is the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in the everlasting kingdom. In other words, there's that already and not yet aspect of the kingdom. John speaks here of a future celebration, but it's a future celebration that we can even now, celebrate. The victory has been won, hasn't it? We can say, we can worship with these elders. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. He is reigning over the kingdom now. The Lord Jesus Christ has ascended. He's been given all authority. He's been given all dominion. He has been enthroned. He is crowned and he is ruling and reigning. And when we worship him, whenever we, we worship him, we worship him as the enthroned king and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we do in the supper. We proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim the Lord's victory until he comes. The, this final form of the kingdom is a reign that at the end of the age, God will consummate together with his son. That will involve the salvation of those 
whom he has purchased with his own blood, the salvation of those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and it will involve the judgment of all those who have opposed him. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 with me, and we'll see how this works out. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and look there at verse 20, where Paul says, but now Christ is risen from the dead, Having been risen from the dead, he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of what? First fruits of the resurrection. First fruits of the resurrection. As Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, so all who are united to him will be raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is the first fruits. He's the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. Four, verse 21, since by man came death, by Adam came death. When Adam sinned, death entered the world, right? Sin entered the world and death through sin. By man also came the resurrection of the dead. By Jesus Christ comes the resurrection. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward, those who are Christ at his coming all those whom the Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed to himself at his coming. Then comes the end. So Jesus Christ comes back, Jesus Christ returns, and there is the resurrection. Come up here, right? Come up here. There is the resurrection. Then, verse 24, comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Interesting, isn't it? When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. There will come a point when the Lord Jesus Christ, having accomplished redemption for his people, that redemptive aspect of the kingdom of God has been fulfilled in his person and work. Every last one of those whom he has bought, purchased with his own blood, has been raised from the dead. And at that point, Jesus Christ turns to God the Father and he gives the kingdom back to the Father that the glory of God may be all in all. Jesus Christ is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, they will rule. He will rule over a consummated kingdom in eternity. All glory and praise to our God who has taken his great power and reign. Do you see? Four, verse 25. He, Jesus Christ, must reign. He's reigning already, right? He's reigning now. He's reigning till, until he has put all enemies under his feet. Already, not yet, right? The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for, quote, he has put all things under his feet, unquote. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. God is not put under him, so to speak, God the Father. Now, when all things are made subject to him, when every enemy, when all his enemies are made his footstool, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. So we worship him even now, brothers and sisters, because he has taken his great power and reigned and reigned. Now notice with me, notice the because, because worship is not to be mindless. Worship is not how you feel when you sing emotionally charged songs? Can those feelings be informed by doctrine? Absolutely. Uh, emotions should be informed by doctrine. It, our emotions should be informed by truth, but they must be informed by truth in order for emotions to be emotions that are acceptable and are pleasing in God's sight. In other words, they can't be based on air. It's because we worship because worship is not thankless. They give him thanks. God has done things that we should be grateful for. He is such that we should be thankful for him, right? God demonstrates in his person, in his work, that he is worthy of praise. He reveals to us that he is worthy of praise. He reveals that he's worthy of praise in creation, but he certainly reveals that he is worthy of praise in his revealed word to us. And the response of any and every rational creature is praise, is praise. To a revelation of God's worth, the response of any reasonable creature is praise and worship. 
So you can't put your brain on the shelf when you come to worship. Can't put your brain on a shelf and feel your way through worship. That's superstitious. Superstitious, you know. If you cry at worship the way you cry at a Hallmark commercial, there's a, there's a problem. <laughs> uh, worship is informed by God's word. Right? So what that tells us, it, that, because, that because tells us that we must know him. We must know him. We must know who he is. We must know what he's done. We must know his marvelous works. If we are to worship him in spirit, which there, Lord Jesus Christ is talking about, John 4, he's talking about our spirit. If we're to worship him with our faculties, with our soul, with our enthusiasm, with our affections, if we're to worship him in that way, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. In truth. That's where those affections, affections, those emotions, that's where they come from. They come from our response to revealed truth. We worship him who was and is and is to come, right? We worship him because of who he is, what he has done, what he has said. What he is, who he is, what he's done, and what he has said is worthy of praise, is worthy of, he is worthy of worship. And praise, worship, involves content, it involves a because. So we don't want to simply stop it. I praise you, right? Um, think with me about that. Uh, when we pray, when we worship, it's not wrong to say, I praise you, Lord. I worship you, Lord. But that praise, that worship has content. What exactly are you praising him for? It's one thing to say, I worship you. What are you worshiping him for? I praise you, Lord. What are you praising him for? What does praise involve? Simply Repeating empty platitudes is not praise. We need to know him, know who he is, know what he's done, the way he's revealed himself in scripture. Simply uh, ginning up feelings by, you know, dimming the lights, playing some emotional music is not, is not praise and worship. There is a reason for which we are to worship him and give him thanks. Those reasons, those many reasons should be the content of our praise, should be the content of our worship. That's why it is often uh, difficult for people to express adoration for God in their, in their prayers. If you've, if you've ever, and I'm saying this because I've had difficulty also, if you've ever prayed and you have difficulty or some difficulty thinking through how to praise God for who he is, things to say to him that are in praise and in worship of him for who he is and what he's done. Uh, and you want to think deeply and you want to think thoroughly about who God is, the attributes of God, the character of God, the nature of God, the essence of his person, right? His perfections, his infinitude. When you think about the nature, the essence, the attributes of God, and then you think about what God has done, how long have we been going through the book of Romans to get to Romans chapter 12? And how many sermons, how many doctrines, how many glorious truths, how many mountain peaks have we crossed over thinking about all that God has done through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, we will spend an eternity, an eternity, never exhausting gratitude, frankly, never coming to a full understanding of who he is and what he's done. He is incomprehensible, inexhaustible. So if that's the case, then Brothers and sisters, we should want to and we should labor to know him, to understand him, to come to a, a better uh, informed knowledge and wisdom of, of who God is and what God has done so that when we worship and when we praise him, it's not difficult to think of those things, right? Uh, that we're not stumped by those things. We don't know him as well as we should. We have his revealed word. We can, we need to study, we need to read, we need to meditate, we need to think, we need to pray, we need to worship. We don't think deeply enough. And that, that's uh, part of when, when Paul discusses uh, not being pressed into the pattern of this evil age from Romans chapter 12, verse two there. Uh, Anti-intellectualism is a pattern of this evil age. Uh, being unthinking people <laughs> is characteristic of this age. We need to be a thinking people uh, and we need to be a praising people. We need to be a thinking people, a reading people, and we need to be a worshiping people. Amen? So next week, Lord willing, from Revelation chapter 11, beginning now in verse 18, we'll look at the judgment of those who are not. 
uh, those who do not know him, uh, those who do not worship him, linked inextricably with the salvation of the just, with the resurrection of the just, is the resurrection of the unjust. And we'll look at that next week if the Lord allows. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we have much to praise you for, much to be grateful for because of who you are and because of the excellencies of your person, the greatness of your name, the glory of your name, and because you have taken your great power and have reigned um, because of what you have done through the person and work of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, um, because, Lord, you did not leave us in our sin to be eternal objects of your wrath, to be eternal objects of your uncompromising justice, but because you determined in eternity past to set your love upon us and to make us objects of mercy, vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. And we thank you for these blessings and benefits that are ours in our union with Jesus Christ. We praise you that you delight to show mercy, that you delight to be gracious, that you have delighted in us, formerly wretched, undeserving sinners, now justified, reconciled, at peace with you, adopted into your household, and one day glorified eternally in union with him and dwelt by your spirit, or they're just indescribable, indescribable riches. And we're grateful to you, Lord, for these things. Help us to meditate on these things, to come to a fuller understanding of them, and to worship and praise you because of them. Um, May our praise and our worship be truly informed praise. May we worship you in spirit and in truth for the glory of your own name, to magnify the person and work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Do that in the power of your spirit supplies that illumination in our hearts and minds. It sheds abroad in our heart the love of our God for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you do that. Let us be a people that are truly grateful and worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we pray these things. For his name we pray these things. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.